you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them turn to Mark chapter 3. So we're looking at a message today called The Crowd and Call. Just our two points this morning. The crowd, as we'll see in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And then we'll see the call in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. So let's start in verse 7 and we'll read all the way through. This is for us this morning. The word of God, and what a gift it is when we receive it as such. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch it. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name of Bonergus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who trained him. Is the reading of God's word. Let's go to God now and ask for him. Bless it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word that we believe what we just read this morning came straight from you without error. So you've spoken to us through your word this morning already. God, we ask that you can help us unpack this scripture that we can understand it truthfully. Holy Spirit, will you shine your light upon us so that we can have the right understanding of it, guards from error. And God, I pray that we can apply this passage to our hearts and lives, knowing and believing that no one's going to walk out of this room the same or either going to be softened by your word or hardened by it. God, we want this seed to fall on good ground, the good ground of our hearts this morning. So show us Christ. Help us respond in repentance and faith. Guards from error, distraction, deceit. God, I pray that the word can do the work in our hearts and all need to do. And glorify you for Jesus in your name. Amen. Last week we ended with the phrase, destroy him. That was in verse uh, 6, where the Pharisees went out and decided they were going to destroy Jesus for what he had done on the Sabbath. And we might get a picture or an impression that Jesus only faced a negative response to his ministry because he's had all this conflict recently. But that is not the case. That's not a full picture of what's going on. We see that very clearly in verses 7 through 12. Jesus and his ministry was wildly growing in popularity with the common people while simultaneously 
was he was being canceled by the religious elite. So this was happening at the same time. The temperature was getting brought up in both ways. Does that make sense? He was getting more popular and more hated simultaneously. There was really no middle ground when it came to Jesus. And this all foreshadows a certain parable that we're going to see in Mark chapter 4. So keep this in your mind as we look at Mark chapter 4 in a couple weeks. I think the parable explains what's happening with all these various responses to Jesus. So Jesus gets in the fight last week with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. And so he attempts to draw, withdraw from the crowd to the sea. We see that in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. But it doesn't work because a great crowd Follow. The thing I want to point out about this crowd, that's our first point, by the way, the crowd in verses 7 through 12, is that this crowd isn't just local. And this isn't a local phenomenon. But people were traveling for miles to see and benefit from Jesus' ministry. We see Idumea right there in verse 8. That was 120 miles south of where they were. Think of that, 120 miles. And nobody had that light blue Toyota Tacoma. Okay? And then Tyre and Sidon, that's 50 miles north. So this is a wide range that people are traveling to come see Jesus. Imagine this phenomenon. Jesus is going viral. He is a celebrity here at this point in time. And it's a diverse crowd too because Tyre and Sidon were uh, almost entirely Gentile. So it's not just a Jewish thing, but it's Jews and Gentiles from hundreds of miles flocking to Jesus. Jesus is trying to withdraw to the sea to take a break. He's had a lot of controversy in Mark so far. And we see this great crowd just rush in upon Jesus at the sea. Jesus was going viral. We see it in verse 8. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. The news about Jesus' ability and power spreading quickly. It's, it's going far, and everybody wants to experience this. And we have to ask, is, is this a good thing? Is this what Jesus desires? Look at verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. This is pretty astonishing from Jesus, is it not? These people from hundreds of miles are clamoring to get to Jesus so badly that Jesus has to have a getaway boat. That's what he's got going on right now, thinking that this crowd is going to crush him. This doesn't seem like much respect or reverence for Jesus, does it? I mean, he's thinking he's about to get crushed by the crowd. I mean, all they're thinking about is the physical benefits he can offer. Right? That's what we see in verse 10. Like they've heard what he can do, specifically that he has healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So they're not hungering and thirsting for his presence or who he is or his teaching. No, they just want his healing. They just want his benefits. And so can you try to picture this scene, which is pretty wild, um, imagine these people. I mean, we're talking lepers and, and withered hands and, and blind and deaf and the mute. All these outcasts in society. This rough-looking crowd you could imagine just desperately pressing in on Jesus so much that he thinks he might get crushed to death. I mean, that's, that's a scene. Now, eventually we know Jesus will get crushed for sinners. 
but it wasn't his time yet, and this was not what he meant by that. And it's not just physical ailments he's dealing with, but he's also portrayed as going against spiritual beings, demonic forces in this passage. We see that in verse 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, which is a cry of desperation, where these spirits knew that they were defeated, and they thought that you know maybe if they revealed his identity and conjured up his name, they could get some power over him. But as we see in verse 12, this is a no contest event where Jesus strictly orders them not to make him known and the unclean spirits are defenseless against Jesus' sovereign authority, which is true today. As, we, as we've mentioned in weeks past, Jesus strictly orders for these demons not to make him known because... Number one, he didn't need any extra attention at this time. Obviously, from this passage, he didn't need any extra attention, right? So the demons are declaring, you're the Son of God, but it wasn't time for Jesus to reveal that yet, so he silences them. Number two, he didn't really love the idea of demons being his witnesses, right? That's not who you want speaking up for your identity necessarily, his demonic forces. And number three, uh, Jesus can only be fully known through his death and resurrection. So it wasn't time for his identity to fully be revealed at the moment, so he silences them. This passage, verses 7 through 12, uh, the crowd operates in the Gospel of Mark as a summary of Jesus' ministry. I hope you see that. We've covered some ground we've already covered in this passage, right? He's healing people, he's going against unclean spirits, he's very popular. Like all those things have kind of happened in the Gospel of Mark. If you've been here most weeks, you've probably heard a story about that. And so this is a summary passage where, Jesus, where Mark's saying, hey, things like this are going on in Jesus' ministry. And this is really helpful and cool for us to remember because, you know, through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to zoom in on certain stories. We're going to study what Jesus did in the Gospels. But we have to remember that this is nowhere close to all that Jesus did. While we trust the Scriptures are sufficient, and contain all we need to know, we also need to recognize that there were so many healings and conversations and sermons and events that weren't recorded in the Gospels. I mean, think about all, you know, he's healing people. He's all these demons, all this stuff. And we just get a summary, just a, just a 20,000 foot view of what's going on. It reminds me of the, the very last verse in the Gospel of John. One of the coolest verses in the Bible says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did for every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So just think, you know, we, we're going to study Jesus' life, see what he's done in the Gospel of Mark, but just to realize that's just the tip of the iceberg. And we're going to spend all eternity hearing these awesome stories about what Jesus has done in the ministry. But this summary, if you had to sum up the summary, is that Jesus, despite opposition, is wildly growing in popularity due to his authority over disease and demons. So in the story, we see Jesus' popularity, we see his power, we see his authority. <coughs> but what I want you to see in this story, verses 7 through 12 in the crowd, is that the crowd is trying to come to Jesus on their own terms to get what they want. They're trying to use Jesus to serve their agenda, their wants, and their desires. Now I want to contrast that with the next passage, the call in verses 13 through 19. Let's just read it again. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. 
He appointed twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he named, gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Jesus goes up on a hike, up on a mountain. I want to remind you that mountains are important in the scriptures. I think this should conjure up the idea of Mount Sinai, Moses going up. This is important. And Jesus called to him those whom he desired. Here we see the election of 12 men to the office of apostle. It reminds me of picking teams for basketball, where if you're the team captain, you get to choose who you want on your team. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the captain of the kingdom. And here we see him choose the men he wanted. Notice in the text, they didn't choose Jesus first. They didn't come up with the idea to be apostles. No, they were called and they obeyed that call. Jesus says it clearly in John 15, 16 to them. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit. So in the passage here, we see 12 men desired, 12 men called, 12 men coming to Christ. That's what verse 13 says. And they came to him. In other words, Jesus gets what he wants. See that in the passage. And could you imagine how this would feel? I mean, I know how it feels to get picked in basketball. It feels pretty decent. But to be picked by Jesus, to be desired by Jesus, to be called by him. I mean, try to imagine hearing your name up on that mountain. <clears throat> and yes, this is a unique historical circumstance. It is. This is a unique historical thing that's not repeated. But it also should remind us of our salvation, should it not? This is how you should feel if you're a follower of Jesus, that Jesus wanted you, that Jesus desired you, that Jesus called you. In this passage, we see the same process we go through. There's a desire from Jesus, a calling from Jesus. We come to Jesus. We, and we'll see here in a second, we, we enjoy the presence of Jesus and we go on mission for Jesus. The exact same thing, desire, call, um, coming, presence, mission. This is what we see in verse 14 where Jesus appoints 12 men and names them apostles. You see that? He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Is anyone in here interested in their genealogy? You know, I've never done this before, but I know a lot of people really love it. You know, getting on Ancestry.com or something like that, that's not a plug or anything. Um, the check's coming from the mail. But uh, I've never done it, but I know how, how awesome and cool it feels to know your roots. And I want to point to this passage that right here, in this story, you see the beginning of our story. Right here. But this is our ancestor. This is the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ, where Christ calls 12 men to himself. I mean, the story of Beach Grove Baptist Church goes all the way back to right here. Is that not awesome? Your story as a Christian goes right back here. Jesus calling these 12 men. So I have some questions I want to ask about these apostles. Number one, what is an apostle? The word apostle means one sent as a messenger. So these are the official representatives that Jesus is going to send out into the world to be his ambassadors. These are men who are going to spread the gospel. They're going to write the New Testament. They're going to establish the church. And to be an apostle, as we see here, you have to be appointed by Jesus personally be discipled by Jesus and be a witness of Jesus' resurrection. 
In contrast, we're, we're disciples of Jesus. That means since we follow after Jesus, we believe in Jesus, we're united to Jesus by faith. But these 12 men, with a couple more to come later, Matthias and Paul, are the only apostles in church history. This isn't something that we pick up and, and claim. And this isn't an office that, that exists anymore. Because these were men specifically appointed by Christ himself to be his representatives and establish the church, write the New Testament, spread the gospel. So, if you see someone claiming the office of apostle today, that's a red flag. That happens too. If you see someone wanting to be called apostle, if at any time in my ministry here I come in and say, you know what, how about an apostle now? Red flag, <coughs> what were the apostles called to do? Verses 14 and 15, he says, He appointed twelve, whom he also made apostles, so that, two things in this verse, but three things really, they might be with him, he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. So I'm going to put these in two categories. What were the apostles called to do? Relationship. Ministry. Number one, relationship. Notice the first thing the apostles were called to do was to what? Be with Jesus. To be a disciple, like we're disciples, means to be a learner. That's what disciple means to learn, follow after someone, model your life around them. And these apostles were first and foremost called to love Jesus, be around Jesus, learn from Jesus, and mimic Jesus. It was personal relationship. Do you see that? I mean, he appointed them apostles so that they might be with him. Think of the travel. Think of the meals together. Think of the conversations they had. Think of the ministry. And contrast this with the crowd you saw in verse 7 and 12. I mean, they didn't care about Jesus as a person, did they? They weren't interested in being necessarily with him. They just wanted to touch him. They just wanted to get what they wanted from him. They just wanted the benefit of his power. But Jesus called these men, in contrast, to be with him and to enjoy his presence. And I hope this doesn't get lost on you in all the talk we do around here about obedience and mission and service opportunities and volunteering and all these things that are good. But the first responsibility of the, of the apostle was to be with Jesus and to enjoy Jesus. That was the first thing that's listed here. It reminds me of the story in Luke 10, 38 and 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered the village and a woman named Martha attended to her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. See so what she's interested in? Being with Jesus. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious trouble on many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which was not taken away. I just want to encourage you guys. First thing the apostles said is they were appointed to be with Jesus. And just like the apostles, I believe that our first priority of disciples of Jesus is the one thing necessary to be seen in chapter 10. The good portion of enjoy Jesus Christ. I just want to ask you to enjoy Jesus this week. Not, Not just have you, have you checked the boxes off, have you served, have you worked hard, have you been busy, but have you enjoyed Jesus Christ, His presence, His word, through prayer. 
to the church, to worship. That was the very first priority in these apostles' call. Number two is ministry. We see this in verse 14 and 15, where he's, he's going to send them out to preach, and he's going to give them authority to cast out demons. Right? So they're going to go do what Jesus did. Jesus had called these men to himself, now not just for a relationship, no, but so that he could delegate the ministry that he was doing to them. You see the two things you're going to do? Preach and cast out demons. Is that not what Jesus has been doing this whole time in Mark? So he's giving them his ministry. Now we know that Jesus was the supreme teacher with all authority. We know that Jesus taught like no one else, and healed like no one else, and had power like no one else. But Jesus, as we see, was not going to do all the work. He's going to pass it off. He's going to train up these 12 men to replicate what he's doing. I mean, could these ministry, I mean, could these men do ministry as awesome as Jesus? No chance. No chance. Jesus is Jesus, right? But nevertheless, even though they weren't going to be as good, he still passed off ministry to them. I mean, Jesus said, John 14, 12, think about that. And then here's what Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So here we see a great principle of discipleship that Jesus didn't just do ministry himself. He delegated, he trained others to do ministry. So if all you do is ministry, Maybe, Maybe not too much like Jesus. Because Jesus, Jesus served and then in, 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 in a sense worked to replace himself. himself. You see that? So, so all of us as disciples, I believe, should be disciples of others to be able to do the ministry you're doing. Jesus was invested in these men so that one day they could replace him. He goes to his father, as we see in John 4:12. And this is the way a church grows, this is the way the kingdom, this is how Jesus chose to grow the kingdom. He's going to take 12 men, he's going to invest in those 12 men, disciple those 12 men, and send them out to do what he needs to do. So all of a sudden, there's 12 people doing it instead of one person doing it. And those 12 do the same thing the next 12, and then you see how we got here today to go back to the church. This is the process of discipleship and multiplication. All right, now I want to look at what kind of apostles did Jesus choose? Sum it up, I want to say, regular Joe's. If you were going to change the world through 12 men, who would you choose? Like, what comes to your mind? What kind of resume do they have? Are they businessmen? Are they Harvard graduates? Are they dynamic leaders, charismatic communicators? As you look at this list and think about who they are, you don't see any Peyton Mannings, right? You don't see any first round draft picks. You just see a bunch of Will Levis's. Okay? That's all you see. If you don't know, sorry. You just see a bunch of regular Joes, okay? Uh, husbands just explain how they You don't see any religious leaders on here. You don't see any political leaders. You don't see any business leaders. You see fishermen, tax collectors, unknown people, and just regular Joes, okay? So uh, some of these people we don't even know anything about. Have you considered that? Okay, okay, sure, we know Peter, James, and John. Those are some all-stars. They're the inner circle of Jesus. They show up a lot in the Gospels. They have these huge roles. Notice the name changes with Peter, James, and John. First, he starts off with Simon. He's given the name Peter. Then you got James and John. They're given his name the Sons of Thunder. 
it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, to, to name, name something, something shows you your core or something. Biblically, that's just consistent how it goes. So, um, you know, you love your dog, you name your dog. You know, you, you have a baby, you name your baby, but you're the authority over that baby. So Jesus here, as he calls the apostles, actually renamed, which shows Jesus' authority over these men. Some of the apostles here have some minor roles, but they do pop up a couple of times. They are not thinking about Andrew. You know, we've got some Andrew stories. Matthew, of course, Thomas. And then, of course, we know Judas Iscariot. There's the end of verse 19, which is a little spoiler alert if you're reading this for the first time. Uh, but this is just to show Mark assumed that the, the original readers of this gospel knew the story already because he gives away that there. But, G, you know, obviously Judas goes on to betray Jesus and Jesus' crucifixion will cover that. But then I want to highlight people like Bartholomew. That is... Do you know anything about that? We're better than nothing about that. But I want you to consider that those men completely changed the world. It reminds me of our call to worship that I read at the beginning of the service, 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This passage is read and this story we see of Jesus calling the twelve apostles shows us something spectacular about Jesus, which I hope is heard. Jesus chooses unspectacular people so that when he does the spectacular, he gets all the glory for it. For instance, if me and my nine-month-old daughter, not month old yet, daughter Madeline, Decided to build a deck together. Can you imagine me and Madeline teamed up and build a deck? Now, honestly, it'd be pretty impressive to build a deck. That's just for the illustration, so I'm confident enough And imagine me and Madeline joined forces and built the deck. Everyone would know that Madeline had nothing to do with it. I'd get all the glory for building that deck. So think about these 12 ordinary men. Which is turned into millions and millions and millions that have professed Christ as their Lord and Savior throughout history. Every single believer in Jesus, including yourself, finds their root here in these 12 regular Joes going out and doing ministry in Jesus' name. And not even to mention that one of the 12 literally betrays Jesus and has crucified. How did this ever work? Have you considered that? This is so impressive that we have to say only Jesus could have pulled this off. So here's your application. You don't have to be spectacular to be Jesus' disciple. You don't have to be significant to be used by God. You don't have to be some impressive Instagram influencer to make a difference in the kingdom. You need Jesus. That's what we need. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Acts 4.13, where 
It says, now they saw the boldness of Peter and John, two regular Joes right there, and perceived that they were as this uneducated common men. This verse should be encouraged to any uneducated common men in here. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been in Jesus. You want to astonish the world? Be the disciple who glorifies Jesus. Get Jesus' presence. He'll use you. The world will be astonished. It reminds me of this quote of Martin Luther. Kind of reminds me of first written book we read. It says, God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, He can make something out of us. Just be nothing. Be with Jesus. He'll do the work. And that's the kind of church I want to be. I hope that's the kind of church you want to be. Where people from the outside look around and say, only Jesus could have pulled that one off. Right? Is that the kind of life you want to live? Where you just live in the power of God and you just focus on being in the presence of Jesus and learning from Him, living in His presence and enjoying Him, and then just go out in His power, live a life that only Jesus could build? So let's just focus on being Jesus. You know, in the in conclusion in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, there's this first question that answers very famous. The question is, what is the chief end of man? Basically, that you know, what's the ultimate purpose of human beings? Okay, what, what, what do we exist for? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I think that's a great way to frame and separate these two groups. The crowd, as we see in verse 7 through 12, they don't come to glorify and enjoy Jesus, right? But the, the call do. They, they come to enjoy Jesus' presence and they go out and do great things and glorify Him in His name. So I want you to reflect on these two passages and these two groups of people, the crowd of verses 7 through 12 and the call of verses 13 and 19, and ask yourself, which one do you most look like? The crowd, they come to Jesus on their own terms. The called come to Jesus on His terms. The crowd doesn't care about Jesus. They just want stuff from Jesus while the called enjoy Jesus' presence and will glorify Him with a ministry that completely turns the world upside down. So in conclusion, I just want to ask, which passage looks the most like you? Let's pray. Father, we want to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Jesus, we want to be with you in your presence. We want to be just regular Joes who love you and enjoy you and are used by you to do things for your kingdom. God, we don't, we don't want to just get your benefits. We, we don't want to you know, crush you as we seek for our desires and wants. We don't want to just jump you on our own terms. Jesus, we want you to be Lord of our lives. We want to completely give our existence to you and your kingdom. We want to live for your glory and joy forever. So God, I pray that you can take this passage of life to our hearts and the truth. God, I pray as we sing, as we, as we reflect on this is be a time of reflection and application, and we can pray, we can pray, we can sing, we can sing, we can sit and dwell and work in that. God, I pray that you in this time, Holy Spirit, take this word and apply it to our hearts. 
And I pray that you make the church, the people, the families that exist to glorify and enjoy Jesus. In your name, amen.